friends, welcome to Bet On You Radio, where every week we have an amazing guest sharing inspirational stories to give you the tools and strategies you need to bet on yourself and win. I am Ben Whiting here with the incomparable Angie Morgan Witkowski. Angie, how are you doing? I thought you were going to say incompetent. And I no, was no, gonna no. Laugh, and I'm like, that is so true. There are plenty it, of things that I'm incompetent <laughs> at. What are you incompetent in? Incompetent? Well, right now I feel like I'm incompetent at keeping my New Year's resolution. Oh. But I was reading that because right now, as we're recording this, we are mid-March. And this is the time when most people who made their New Year's resolutions about being healthier and going to the gym, they tend to stop going. And mm-hmm. those resolutions tend to disappear. So I feel incompetent about that, but because you know we do the things we do, I know that a big part of staying motivated and keeping your goals is self-forgiveness. So I'm trying to say, you know what? It's been two weeks since I've been to the gym and that's okay. I'm a human being. I can go today and you lace up your shoes and walk over to the Y. The, uh, but what about you? What are you uh, feeling incompetent about oh, lately? Oh, gosh. You know, life. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I've been traveling general. a ton. And, you know, it's it's like when you're gone a lot, like the small things don't get done. And then suddenly it's not just one or two small things. It's multiple small things. And like you, just trying to stay true to my vision and aspirations for New Year's resolution. So I said on this program before that I wanted to try to learn a second language slowly. And I've... You know, yeah, I Duolingo trying to get back into the Spanish. I used to, you know, when I started off in January, I was like five days a week for 10 minutes. Now it's like three days a week. And always, like I always think about New Year's is a really great starting point, but why not today? Today's a great starting point. Just using today as a starting point. Yeah, yeah. It, new, it, it is kind of a arbitrary thing it when is. you think about it. But yeah, we can start new goals and have new resolutions anytime we want. We can have one every month. You hear that about like Valentine's Day. Why do I need a day to celebrate my love? Because you don't do it unless it's that, you know, flowers and chocolate. But in that same spirit, we don't need a Valentine's Day. We don't need January 1st. You don't have to have a holiday to, yeah. to have some fun and celebrate other people. I know. So oh. it's good. Have you been traveling a ton? I have. I with Miami, Nashville, and then this week I'm going to Chicago. So I'll be in Chicago for St. Patrick's Day. Oh my uh, gosh. Delivering a keynote out there. But I'm excited to go and see uh, the Green River because usually they, they dye the Chicago River green uh, for St. Patrick's Day. I'm sure it's not a healthy environmentally friendly thing but it does look cool it does i love a good st patrick's day celebration though isn't that fun i used to live in hawaii lived there for three years and everyone used to always tell me go to maui they have the most incredible st patrick's day celebration and you know what i never did what a regret in life oh my goodness gracious isn't that just a shame so i am glad that you're going to take advantage of being in chicago and doing all the things that are st patrick's day related do all the things just drive down there and drive back the uh but uh speaking of new year resolutions and health uh anyone watching this would probably look at you and look at me and say like well angie's into running ben not so much but we both like running we love running and i am excited because our guest today is the founder of Zero Shoes. Now, this is a company that makes minimalistic shoes. If you've ever read the book Born to Run by Christopher McDougall, he talks about the Tara Umara tribe that runs in nothing really but a thin piece of leather and string uh, for their shoes. And so Stephen took that idea and started making minimalistic shoes. And they make running shoes, they make casual shoes. And he is here today. And, you know, we've had the Porter brothers on here before at Shark Tank that got a great deal. Uh, Stephen was on Shark Tank with his wife, Lena, the co-founder of Zero Shoes, and they were made an offer, and they turned it down. They turned down $400,000 so they could bet on themselves. And I am really excited 
to hear a little bit more about that decision. That's guts, man. That's trust. But there, there must be more to the story, and I'm anxious to hear that. But I'd be curious because Stephen was a guest recommendation that you brought, and you are a zero shoe advocate l- lover. Yep. Yep. And I'm not a medical <laughs> professional. Not a medical professional. The uh, this is not medical advice. But for me, anecdotally, I was having a lot of knee issues uh, whenever I ran more than you know eight or nine miles, and zero shoes fixed it completely. Amazing. I'm a Brooks girl myself. I've never ran in those flat shoes or those toe shoes that they have, but I've always been curious about them. But for you, it seems to be a really good combination. Yeah, it works for me. If you've heard anything about barefoot running, uh, for me, it is what cured all my knee pain when it came to running. And he has an incredible story of just betting on himself. Steven, welcome to Bet On You Radio. Thank you, thank you, pleasure to be here. Oh, it's it's great to have you here. So Angie and I are both runners. I mean, Angie, how long have you been running? Since I've been 12, yeah, it's like a lifetime passion of mine, yeah. Right, so for me, it wasn't. I hated running as Most a kid. And then it was about 2011 or 12, and I read, hold on, I read this book, uh, Born to Run by Christopher McDougall, and I started running uh, almost every day once I finished this book. Because uh, it just got me excited about running. Uh, Steven, you obviously are passionate about feet running. Where did the idea for Zero Shoes come from? And first, can you just tell us what Zero Shoes are? Yes. So what we make are super lightweight, ridiculously comfortable, can casual and performance shoes, boots, and sandals that people use for pretty much everything from taking a walk to running ultramarathons. And they're all based on this simple idea of letting your body do what's natural and not getting in the way of that. So they have a wider foot-shaped toe box. Your toes are going to squeeze together. They don't elevate your heel. That messes with your posture. They're really, really flexible to let all those bones and joints in your body or in your feet move. And the soles are designed to give you that protection and traction you obviously want, but also the ground feedback that your brain is looking for to know how to effectively, efficiently, and enjoyably move your body. Um, I like to say to people, you know, when they ask me what we do, I ask, do your feet feel better at the end of the day than they did at the beginning of the day? And if not, it's because you aren't letting your feet do what's natural. You're wearing your shoes that get in the way. We just get out of the way so your body can do its job. That is incredible, Stephen. And as you're talking, I'm thinking, wow, you know a lot about the feet, the body, your foot comfort, things like that. Where did you pick up this knowledge and how did you learn to apply this? Because it's fascinating. This is really niche and interesting. I'll say it this way. I, I, I say a lot of provocative things on the inner tubes and um, a lo- and some people <laughs> get on board with that and other people you know, respond with, yeah. hey, moron. And one of the hey, moron guys was in, the, in Europe. He's a footwear designer. And he said, you know nothing about footwear or biomechanics. I said, were you suggesting that in the 13 and a half years I've been doing this, I've learned nothing? And he's like, well, I said, are you, are you telling me that the other people in my company who have a combined 300 years of experience in footwear know nothing? Well, and are, did you know that when I was in college, I had friends getting master's degrees in biomechanics, and I would just for the fun of it, take their tests and pass it, even though that wasn't something I studied. I just have a knack for, you know, how understanding how bodies move. I've taught everything from Zen archery to Tai Chi to yoga to running to gymnastics. I just have a, uh, to tap dancing, I just have a a knack for figuring out optimal ways for bodies to move. And you're also one of the 
fastest people on the planet, right? Well, uh, let's clarify that. Okay. <laughs> so, I mean, why not? So for men over 60, there's a master's track and field circuit. I'm a sprinter. So when you ask about running, I'm not a runner. I'm a sprinter. I go short distance, straight line on a track. Mm -hmm. uh, and for men over 60, I'm like the 15th fastest guy in the country right now. I'm a master's All-American, maybe like 50th in the world. My real claim to fame is for men over 60, um, I think I'm the second fastest Jew in the world. Oh, excellent. Oh, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that is really quite impressive. So tell us how <laughs> you got into shoe, because there's an interesting story that also involves Shark Tank and betting on yourself. We'll get there later, but okay. I would love to talk about the idea behind Zero Shoes. Like, what was the inspiration? Well, it was the same book. It was Born to Run. Um, so what happened was I got back into sprinting a couple of years before that book came out and was getting injured pretty much constantly. Mm -hmm. And a friend of mine who's a world champion runner, and in Boulder, Colorado, saying world champion runner is synonymous with saying my neighbor, because they're mm -hmm. everywhere. He gave Absolutely. me a copy of Born to Run, suggested I try running barefoot to see if I learned anything about why I was getting injured all the time. And in short, I learned that I had a form problem that I couldn't feel through the padding of a regular motion controlled, padded, art supporting, et cetera, et cetera, shoe. Barefoot, though, what's interesting, doing it wrong hurts, and doing it right feels great. And so I could feel that form problem and it just naturally corrected itself. And I wanted that natural movement, that barefoot-like experience as much as I could have it. Uh, and I wanted to stop having to argue with people about what is, whether it's legal to get into a restaurant in bare feet, which by the way it is. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and not just beach bars in Hawaii, you can no, no, no. go it's, roll up there in Boulder? There is no state in America that has a law against being barefoot in a restaurant, for example. Now, they can have their own rules, but there's nothing illegal about it. And that's always their argument. Um, and my wife also was kind of tired of me walking into our house with our white carpeting and my bare, dirty feet. Mm -hmm. So I knew about the Tatarmara Indians, who are what Born to Run is uh, mostly about. And I just made a pair of sandals based on a 10,000-year-old design idea. I got some rubber from a shoe repair place. I got some cord from Home Depot, laced them up, put them on, and that's what I was wearing. And I bought, and you can only buy like enough material for maybe eight or 10 pairs of shoes. So I had a bunch of leftover material. I made a pair for my wife. She sort of patted me on the head, didn't understand what the hell this was all about. Um, <laughs> made some for other runners. And then, you know, I, I got just enough money from doing that to buy more material because people kept asking me to make more for them. And finally, a guy who was writing a book about barefoot running said, if you had a website, and treated this hobby of yours, this sandal making hobby, like a business, I could put you in the book. Well, I've been an internet marketer for, geez, 32 years. I'd built hundreds and hundreds of websites. So I rushed home and I pitched this incredible opportunity to my wife who told me I was a complete idiot and it was a waste of time and it wouldn't make any money and insisted that I not build a website. So I told her I wouldn't and then she went to bed and I did. <laughs> was that easier for forgiveness than for permission yeah. sometimes um, i didn't even i didn't ask for either of those i just did it <laughs> good for you she kind of well i was we had started a search engine marketing business around that same time so she was thinking it's just yet another one of my they didn't have ritalin when i was a kid distractions so mm -hmm. um but i said it'll be a good case study and i thought maybe you know i'd own all the keywords that i cared about in about three or four months and i was totally wrong it only took me six weeks oh wow and, and by that point, by that point, Lena realized that this was going to be a real business. And I'm a product marketing person. She's a brilliant finance and operations person. And so she just kind of walked in and said, all right, I'm all in and I'm going to be running the thing behind the scenes. And that's how it all began back in late 2009. Wait, 2009? Yeah, something like that. And yeah, so none of this would have come about if you hadn't just been trying to solve a problem 
for yourself. It would, yeah. It, well, it wouldn't have happened if I didn't have a problem myself. <laughs> if I wasn't getting injured, then I wouldn't have looked for a way to stop getting injured. That's great. I think a lot of people. Uh, what's what's the saying from Tony Robbins? You know, most people's biggest problem is they think they shouldn't have any. And as we go through life, we can see those things as problems or we can see them as learning opportunities. And it sounds like you just took a problem you had and turned it into an opportunity. Everything I've ever done is um, identifying a problem. I mean, knowing why I'm frustrated and knowing specifically why I'm frustrated, not just I am frustrated, not being aware that I am, but knowing uh, so for some reason, understanding what's the thing that's getting in the way. So I had a software company way back when. I have a master's degree in screenwriting and film, and I knew why the software that existed for writing screenplays in the very arcane format that they have to be written didn't make sense and was really complicated, and I figured out a solution. And so I just have a fondness for finding solutions, not just bitching about the problem. Okay, so you had this crazy product idea that solved a problem that you're experiencing. You built a website building products or creating products, then what happened? Well, let's back up. To okay. call it creating product is an overstatement. We were buying <laughs> big sheets of rubber, cutting them into smaller sheets of rubber, buying big things of cord from Home Depot, cutting, okay. cutting them into smaller pieces, trying to keep both of those away from the cats, <laughs> and then um, selling those along with instructions on how to make your own sandals with based, again, on this 10,000-year-old design idea. So we were selling do-it-yourself kits for the first three, uh, like three years of the business. Really? And I believe you sell, you sold a, a hole punch as well. <laughs> if well, I, you know, not at first. Um, oh, we, really? <laughs> at first, we were just saying, here's where you can go get a hole punch. Um, but then we we sourced one, and it's just a metal punch. And man, those things weighed a ton. It was crazy. It's almost like you were selling like people craft projects, like craft box and a kit. Well, what we were selling was the ability to learn the superpower of how to make your own shoes. Nice. And so, and I call it that because. People were responding that way. It's like, I didn't know I could do this. This is so exciting. And some people said, once I realized I could make my own footwear, I started looking around my house to see what else I could fix, what else I could build, what else I could do that I didn't think was possible. And that was really fun. Um, but what really nailed it for us, maybe a couple months in, we're walking in Boulder, Colorado on the Pearl Street Mall. It's just an outdoor pedestrian mall. And a pa and we're, my wife and I are both wearing our sandals. And a pack of teenage girls run up to us and go, oh, my God, those are sick. Where do you get those? And we talked to them for a minute. And when they left, I turned to Lena and said, we're going to be billionaires. And so um, that was really like the pivotal moment. Actually, the pivotal moment was the first pair, the first do-it-yourself sandal kit that we sold in late November, right after we put up the website, because it was sold to someone in Minnesota, mm -hmm. where it was already snow, had snow on the ground. And we figured if someone in Minnesota is buying a sandal kit when there's snow on the ground and no chance that's going to change for about six months, something's going on here. Uh, and so the response we got, we, we literally thought when we started the business, maybe it'll be a car payment. But within, again, six weeks tops, we knew this was going to be our full-time gig. And Lena came into the kitchen one day and made the appropriate hand gesture to go along with the phrase, I'm all in. And that's where it all began. Was that frightening for you, scary for you? Did you feel like you had every level of security at that point to make the leap? Or did you just have this hunch? <laughs> um, it was the exact opposite. Actually, we had been retired from 2001 to 2009. We had done some clever real estate investing. And in 2006, we predicted that the market was going to crash because we were seeing it in what we were doing. And we basically had about two months worth of income or two months worth of cash left in the bank when we started zero shoes so it was oh. and again we were banking on our search engine marketing business being what our business was so 
Um, I never had any concern because that's just not the way my brain works. So if I'm starting some new thing, I just work on the assumption that there's going to be a there there. And if I'm proven wrong at some point, that's fine. But it, I, I never feel like some sense of anxiety about is it going to work or not? That's just not how I think. Oh, that's really cool. Does now does your does your wife does she think like that at all, or is it something you have in common? Yeah, she's third generation insurance, so um, ah. she is constantly <laughs> thinking of all the things that will go wrong. Um, happily, most of them, almost none of them, well, no, a large percentage of them don't. So Lena likes to say, "I have the easy job. I think of all the cool stuff to do and how much fun it is to make it happen." And her job is to tell me that it's not going to work and we don't have the money for it. And she's right in that situation. So I can tell you, one of the happiest days of my life was when she said to me, if you have a marketing experiment you want to try and it's going to cost less than $1,000, you don't need my permission anymore. Like, oh, my God. oh, that's great. <laughs> Thanks for that. I would love to hear more. I think it's fascinating because Ben and I do hear from people who've created companies, you know, husband, wife teams. You talked about just different complementary skill sets. What are some of those other complementary skill sets that you and your wife have that really make a good business partnership? Well, it's actually the thing that is not uh, that's similar between the two of us. And that is we both know the other one's really smart about what they do. Mm. And so we don't get in the way. We don't try to we never had a fight or a power struggle about things other than uh, her job again was to tell me when I can't do it. And my job at that point is to get over being grumpy. And, and beyond that, I mean, Lena is much more, um, this is going to sound odd. She's more of an introvert, but simultaneously more of a people person than I am in, in, a, in a different way. So I'm much more into engaging with people. She's much more into taking care of people. So my mm -hmm. management style on a good day is laissez-faire. Um, I just assume everyone's going to do their job and they don't need my supervision or they don't need, you know, pats on the back or the head or encouragement. They're just going to do it in the same way that I do. That is, of course, ludicrous. And she just wants to make sure everyone's happy. And I think, you know, that really kicked in not that long ago, four or five years ago, when we were doing an annual review with one of our employees and he referred to his uh, engagement with us as his career. And when he left, we went, Oh, oh no, we've created careers for people. I mean, we literally weren't thinking about that. We just were building the business, but we honestly hadn't really given a lot of thought to what that meant. And that was, um, that's really Lena's thing actually, is thinking about how do we build an environment that people want to be involved in. And she's constantly involved in checking in with people and seeing how they're doing and seeing how she can be helpful. We now have an HR person who takes over a big chunk of that, mm -hmm. but Lena and I both feel that we really need to be actively involved to the extent that we should be. So she still participates with our HR person to make sure everyone's having a good time and doing yeah. and, and doing what they want to do. We like finding things that people can do that we didn't know they could do when we hired them and then giving them an opportunity to bring that into what we're doing. That's great. Oh, so you're kind of bringing people's own, making sure people know and discover their own strengths and then can use it. Yeah, my favorite thing to ask someone who's been around the business for a little while is, you've been here long enough to know where there's something that we're not doing that you're good at. What is it? Do you want to do it? And let's organize that. So our our accountant um, started out in customer service. I mean, well, a lot of people started out in customer service, but we have just a huge number of people who have grown up in the company. And we're really, really proud about that. It's really fun to watch. 
-hmm. it sounds like it's both a culture of innovation and then and very much so culture of empowerment like you get to see up front close the opportunities go <laughs> i'm not gonna stop you <laughs> well it's also that um i like to say all companies rise to the level of the neuroses of their founders mm -hmm. and my one of mine is i'm not a hierarchical person i treat everyone like they're friends of mine because why would they be that's and, a great question why uh, wouldn't you be my friend that's right, awesome yeah. you know, look, it's the same thing with dogs all dogs are my friends so yeah you know i had a girlfriend say you walk up to every dog like they're gonna like you i went yeah so i do a similar thing with our employees i don't anyone who calls me boss is not going to last here very long mm -hmm. so given that and and we involve our everyone in the company from warehouse to the executive level in decisions about products, product colors, product names, lots of opportunities where people are really engaged. And at the end of every quarter, we show them what the numbers are. We want them to understand how the business works to the extent that they care. We have a profit sharing inspired quarterly bonus program where if we have a profit every quarter, we split it evenly among everybody in the company because Lane and I believe that everyone in the company, every part of the company is as important as every other for keeping this thing running. And at the and we also have a program where uh, people who've been in the company for a little while, without having to deal with the tax complexes of, of options, there's a profit sharing plan as well. If we ever get acquired or someone buys a majority position in the company, uh, everyone gets an even percentage of that as well. I mean, if they've been here for, if they've vested, if they've been here for the right amount of time. So we've been talking about transparency. We've been talking about, you know, making sure everyone in a company feels like they're part of the team. And I can't help but wonder how this lends itself, in your opinion, to motivation. I've read that motivation, it's not about making people do great work. It's about, about making them feel great about the work they do. And when we empower people like that, we essentially let them know we trust them. And I would just love more thoughts from you on that kind of intrinsic motivation. Okay, well, you just summed it up, so on to the next point. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> You're the first person that's called me out on that. <laughs> no, you nailed it. I mean, it, you know, if you're just if you're just trying to offer people more money, that's not the thing that's going to be helpful. Uh, my wife has a great line about our business. She goes, there's enough shoe companies in the world. We don't need any more shoe companies unless your shoes change people's lives. And that's what happens with our product. We hear from people literally every day, reviews and testimonials and emails and phone calls saying that just by getting out of the way and let their body do what's natural, they either have something comfortable, which they haven't had before, uh, or something that's let them do something new that they've always wanted to do or do something they gave up because they had some ache or pain or whatever, and now they can do it. And everyone in the company is very aware and very palpably aware of how they're contributing to changing people's lives. And that's a very different thing than just trying to make people do something because you're paying them some amount of money, which just never ultimately works. The number of times we have given a raise to somebody because they sort of insisted and then they almost immediately quit is relatively high where it just becomes clear that they were you know, they were asking for more money to try to get over something that they weren't telling us about. And ironically, had they just told us what they were experiencing and feeling, we would have most likely found a way around it where everything would have worked out okay. But to the extent that someone keeps a secret, that will um, just fester and become problematic. Uh, here's a weird line. You, you never really know someone until they're out walking out the door, whether, you know, they're leaving on their yeah. own volition or you're asking them to go. That's when reality is very, very clear. And it certainly reveals. I'm curious from you where you got these concepts regarding culture and what was important 
to your organization. Was this something in your previous career experience where maybe you experienced a really negative culture or maybe going back to the fast food restaurant you worked in when you were 14? Like, where did you come to these conclusions about how you want to run your business? I have no idea. Um, I never, <laughs> I've never worked at a fast food restaurant. I've never had a job okay. that I didn't create for myself. From the time I was 12, really? I started doing magic shows at kids' birthday parties. And then, yeah, I've never had a resume. I've never done, interviewed a job for a job. I want to. I want to go interview for a job somewhere and just mess it up as badly as I can for the fun of it. Um, give all the wrong answers just to see. What, I'm just curious what the experience is like. And tape it and tape it and put yeah. it on the internet. Oh, man. I don't know I if you know this, Stephen, but you and Ben are both magicians and what? I should make this company. Yeah. I co yeah. Yes. I. So I am now the majority of what I do is keynote speaking and, you know, in leadership development consulting. But the way I got into it was through corporate entertainment. And I was oh, a magician and mind reader oh, for man. two decades. <laughs> I, my big thing, I mean, aside from doing kids birthday parties, when I was 16, I started street performing. Yes, yeah. Jim Cellini. Do you know that name? No. He is a. Uh, he was. All right. We're gonna get into the. I'm not gonna. I, I'm not gonna be here too long. I promise, Angie. I think you guys just became best friends. <laughs> we did. But Tony Slidini had a student yeah. named Jim Cellini. Oh uh, yeah, Jim, yeah, yeah. Jim Cellini was my mentor. So I was a busker as well for for a long time, Where? and I. Uh, in Chicago. Oh no! Well, Jim taught me in in Switzerland. This is a whole other story that I'm not going to make our our no. listeners sit through. But maybe you and I will have a, a phone call later and just get into the weeds well, about we'll it. We'll do that. But I'll do the shortest one. My my birthday present for my 15th birthday from my parents uh, was a private lesson with Tony Slidini. Oh, oh my goodness! My gosh. Oh my gosh! Steve. Serendipity <laughs> that what? you not only love their shoes and yet this. Amazing. And now I know we can both push coins through a table. Well, and, That's yeah. incredible. and one more thing, you're going to have to ask me the story and I can't do it on the air because it involves words we're not allowed to say, but mm -hmm. ask me about meeting Harry Lorraine. Oh, Harry. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Right. You, you will love that story. Oh, oh well, oh. I need to hear it too. And I, I, we have a really aggressive beat button. So yeah, we'll have to maybe after the show, okay. right. we Wait, can no, do it. Yeah. No, no, here, I'll, I'll do it really fast. You can cut it if you want. So okay. I go into the, the most popular magic store in the world. It's called Tannen's Magic Shop. I showed them this trick. I'm 15 years old. I showed them this trick that I had come up with. And then this guy, Harry Lorraine, who was perhaps the most famous magician in the world at that time, comes in and they say, oh, show Harry that thing. And I pretend that I don't know who he is. And it's a coin trick. It's like a goofy little coin vanish. I go, look, I can take this coin and I can make it go through my leg. And he goes, yeah, I get it. I go, no, I can make it go through the rest of my, my torso too. He goes, yeah, I get it. I go, here, I can make it go through my head too. He goes, no, I understand how it works. And I said, no, maybe not because what I'm really doing, when I say I'm making the coin go through my body, I'm actually not putting it in my other hand like it looks. I'm holding it back in my first hand. So the coin is already where I say it's going to go. And he goes, yeah, I get it. I said, but sometimes when I do it badly, the coin just vanishes and it's gone. And Harry leans into me, very quietly says in my ear, you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's great. Well, it's great. We've beeped that out and we're back to the actual programming now. <laughs> oh, well, here, this is actually a little tangent I will take because Angie and I have talked about this uh, at length. Uh, so as a busker, you know, there's three things you have to do. You have to make people stop, you have to make them stay, and you have to make them pay. And I talk about this ad nauseum when I'm doing sales training, when I'm doing teaching people how to network. Okay. What did you learn wait, on the sidewalk? Let me just stop right there. Oh, yeah, yeah. You and I need to talk because I started working on something years ago that I never completed because that happens a lot. Uh, it was the Street Performer's Guide to Marketing. Oh. We, I, we, yes, we have a lot to talk about. I have yeah. a book as well. 
in the works that Angie's oh, helping me out it, with. Then I don't have to. That's a relief. Great. <laughs> well, what I would love to know, what other lessons did you learn from street performing that you have found that you can now apply to what you do at Zero Shoes, whether that's how you connect with people or how you market or how you uh, sell? Um, the biggest thing is that you realize that you need to, you know, that first part, make them stop. What are you going to do to pattern interrupt people? What are you going to do to make them to make you stand out from the millions of things that they're that are catching their attention on a moment-to-moment basis and finding ways to do that so and it's often doing something that is the opposite of what you might think uh and for us we have to say things that are like bad about shoes about any shoe or you know highlight something about about your feet that people aren't thinking about but the actually i just realized perhaps the biggest one and it took me a long time to learn this i didn't learn it and apply it directly is you need to pay exquisite attention to your competition and know what they're doing and how you relate to that and how you respond to that. And I say that because as a street performer, there was a guy in New York who was the most popular street performer at the time, who when I said, you know, where do I go? How do I set up? He goes, oh, why don't you just set up next to me? And so I did and I started my act. And once I had a big crowd, he then started his show and stole my crowd. Well, so that was lesson number one, but lesson number two was within two weeks, he couldn't do that anymore. I figured out how to keep the crowd. And by week number three or four is when he threatened to kill me and then proved that he was not kidding. And so um, I had to find another place to go where I could still make a living. Like when people say to me, well, there's all these competitors in the footwear industry. I go, yeah, I hear there's more than one company that makes shoes. They go, what do you mean? I go, well, there's always a way to differentiate yourself and do something, whether it's differentiating the product or your marketing style or your audience. There's always a way to make, make it work if you're doing something real and valuable. And that was a big one. And the other, I mean, like you said, you got to make them pay is just how to manage. I'm trying to think of how to say this as a, a lesson, but there's lots of ways of getting people to pay, some of which are invisible. There's times where you can give something away for free, but there's someone on the back end who's willing to pay you for the fact that you just did that because they want to find that audience as well, or they want to sponsor you for some reason. So there's lots of different ways of getting them to pay. We just don't know who the them is in that equation. It might be a customer and there's different kinds of customers. There are some people that I have met who refuse to buy a shoe if it costs less than $5,000. They just, you know, that's their little social circle where everything has to be stupidly expensive and have a crazy ass brand name on it. And there are other people who can't pay more than $20. And so finding who your audience is and how you want to work with that audience in different places, um, that's another thing that comes out of street performing as well. That's oh, a friends. very fascinating point about the $5,000 shoe, though. Those are not my people. Ben, I don't think those are your people no, either. No, not but... at all. <laughs> Stephen, you and I just realized we have a very similar background in terms of magic, in terms of street performing. For about four or five years, I was the head demonstrator at Magic Incorporated, uh, <laughs> one of the oldest magic shops in the world in Chicago. But you also have a story about Al's magic shop in D.C., Al Cohen, yeah. a legendary magic demonstrator. <laughs> Al was so good. When my parents would come in for my birthday every year and ask Al what they what they should buy me for my birthday, he would show them some new trick and then he would sell it to them. And then every time they'd give it to me, it was the same trick. It was a thumb tip. He just kept showing <laughs> them a new thumb tip trick every time. But the um, but which was brilliant. It was like an inside joke. But my favorite thing when I worked there, the biggest lesson that I got from him, I did something. I don't remember what because this was when I was fourteen and I'm sixty now. I did something wrong. I, I messed something up. I, I don't know what it was. And he was very mad at me. But somehow it was screamingly obvious as he was screaming that he was mad because of what I did, not at me as a person. And that was 
so, so powerful. My wife says to people, it doesn't really happen so much anymore, but early on when we were hiring people and there was just, I was in charge of pretty much everything on the operational side, on, on the, the digital side. She said, um, it's, you will often hear him you know, running up and down the hall yelling if the website goes down or something. And if someone does something wrong, he will yell about that too, but he will never be yelling at someone. He will never be calling a person a name or accusing them of something. He's just upset that the rug got pulled, underneath, uh, pulled out from underneath him and is complaining about the thing, not the person. And you could see people go, oh. And in the rare times where someone really screwed something up, it was very Al Cohen-esque. I was very upset about the thing, and then we immediately looked for a solution. It was never upset about the person. And um, that was uh, something I got from Al Cohen at House Magic Shop. I oh. think that's a great story. What great way to differentiate in your mind too about the emotional intelligence component within all that. I'm going to switch gears a little bit just for the time we have because Ben and I really, uh, well, I knew about your product through Ben, who is a huge fan. Do you want to show all your shoes oh, yes. that you brought today, Ben? Well, without a doubt. If I you have. were here, Stephen, he would ask for an autograph on right. all these <laughs> shoes. <laughs> so this is probably the shoe I wear the most casually. It's the, the uh, leather the Denver, Denver boot yeah uh, of course when it's snowing i wear the alpine which is what Ooh. i have on right now uh, well, I you're run, a great shoe model by the way i know yeah. i run in the prios and this is very similar to the the hiracha i ran yeah. my first uh half marathon and 10ks in and this is yeah this is all it is that's what you run in it is you know and, it's it's simple it's something to protect your foot and something to hold the protection on your foot that's what it, footwear has been for the majority of human history and, and then we mess it up by putting layers and layers of foam and everything else in it. But before we go there, I want to hear about Shark Tank because we have had on Bet on You Radio a couple gentlemen, Garrett and Dakota Porter, they actually got a deal and they were talking about how their Shark Tank process was. But you actually went on Shark Tank and decided to decline an offer. Can you please tell us that story? Uh, we were on Shark Tank, we declined an offer. You guys are just setting me up and there's nothing for me to say. So the emotions, the ideas, the concept, mm -hmm. what it felt like, go there. I'll tell you the best part about Shark Tank for us. Yeah. Was when we were, this was about two and a half years into the business. And, and when, they, when we applied for the show and they said they wanted us on the show, uh, it made us really sit down and get clear about what we wanted for ourselves personally and for the business. Mm -hmm. And so it gave us a level of focus that we didn't really have before. And more, by that point, we'd had so many people saying, hey, you changed my life. We realized this was an important thing that we were doing and we just needed to get serious about it. It wasn't gonna be a little lifestyle business, it could be. In fact, I said to Lena, wouldn't you like a little business that um, internet-based, take a couple hours a day, made a couple hundred grand a year? She goes, that's what we have. Went, yeah, it just can't stay that way though. It's We're too vulnerable and that's just not gonna be the right thing for us personally or the right thing for the people that we're helping. Mm -hmm. So that was the biggest thing. Getting on the show is, uh, being at the show is wild because it, when you watch the show, it looks like a business conversation. It is far from it. Um, the sharks are rarely paying attention to you. They're all trying to make their own points. They're all trying to you know find some clever thing to say. So, it, I mean, the show is called Shark Tank, not Stephen and Lena Tank. And so it was really all about them even while we're in the tank. Mm -hmm. And uh, my favorite part, you don't see a whole lot of things. Every objection they had, we hit out of the park so far that at one point, Robert just literally jumps out of his chair and yells at us, you have the perfect answer for every question. And we looked at him somewhat incredulously and said, it's our business. So we walked in knowing we had, we had rehearsed, God, 
we had everyone that we could think of who knew anything about business pretend to be the sharks and we rehearsed with them. We read all of their autobiographies or biographies. We talked to bankers and investors and people who bought and sold shoe companies to know what our valuation could be. We knew what we were going to say yes and no to from day one. And we're uninsultable. So if someone says to me, you know, you're insane, I've thought that sometimes, so why would I argue with you? So when, when Kevin, in fact, says he makes us an offer and I turn him down and I make a counteroffer and he goes, oh, you're crazy or something like that, I go, well, maybe, because, you know, all entrepreneurs are to a certain extent. So, but Robert also, when Kevin made his original offer, we were offering uh, 8% of the company for 400 grand. He said, I'll give you the 400 grand for 50% of the company. And it was such a non-starter that we literally forgot he even made the offer. And Robert had to remind us. <clears throat> and Lena says, so are you bringing to Kevin, are you bringing anything to the table other than money? And he says, well, you know, I'm a smart businessman and I've got a good Rolodex. And I hear her say, so nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, were you like, honey? Yes. So, <laughs> or are you like, honey? Oh, <laughs> no, no, no. I was, I, my wife is brilliant. And so that part didn't make it on. Well, what was the uh, this is so great because I love what you say about, you know, you have to kind of have to a certain extent Teflon skin because people are going to say things that some people get really offended by. But entrepreneurs, they can't can't really do that. How do you define the line between uh, a comment that you seriously consider and try to find that truth in and a comment that you just kind of brush off your shoulder? Uh, if it's about me personally, seriously, there's no critical thing you could say about me that I wouldn't either be able to find for real or metaphorically. Um, I, it's just not a thing. Uh, and, and more ironically though, if you have a problem with our product because manufacturing is never 100% perfect, mm -hmm. that I take very personally because I'm responsible for getting it out the door. And even if I'm not, even if there's a bunch of other people who are technically responsible, that's their job, I'm the guy on the front line. The buck stops here. So I take that very personally and I look for solutions. Sometimes you can find them, sometimes you can't. Early on in the company, I won't get into the details, we had a, a manufacturing problem. And I said to the manufacturer, you got to fix this. And he goes, well, what did it cost you to deal with it? And I very stridently said, $5,000. It was our first year in mm -hmm. business. And he goes, well, to fix it will cost you $500,000. I said, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when I learned that sometimes, you know, things just don't go perfectly and you have to find a way to deal with it. And that's the way it always is. So I... I um, there's, there's one other piece. There's, I'm trying to think of how to describe this. Some people will say to us, why don't you manufacture in America? And I say, because it's literally not possible to make our product here in the same way that it's literally not possible to find a domestically made version of the, the devices we're using for this conversation. But I don't hear you complaining to Apple or Samsung or whomever, you know, whoever made your mm -hmm. device. And uh, so when people don't know what they don't know, that one I, I want to address. I want to try to educate people so they understand what's going on, but I don't, it doesn't uh, affect me in any way. Steven, it is time in the program to ask you our five favorite questions. Uh, are you ready? Yes, I'm disappointed to hear that everything we've done up to now is not your favorite. It's well, not, well, it's I don't, a build-up, really. This we'll, is dessert. We, we'll reflect. We'll reflect. Who knows? Uh, maybe next week we'll ask the guests about their entrepreneurship into minimal shoes. <laughs> <laughs> I would. Okay. So I would love to hear from you, Stephen, 
if you have a book in mind that was really either inspirational or influential to you, when you think about everything you've read in your 60 years on this earth, can you pinpoint a book at a specific time maybe that was influential and inspirational? Uh, there are two. Um, one oh. is called Stumbling on Happiness by Daniel Gilbert. Uh, oh, I love that book. Oh, it's the best. If you really, really grok it, if you really, really take it in, it's it, it can be life-changing. And the second is Fooled by Randomness from Nassim Taleb, which the subtitle is The Hidden Role of Chance in Markets and Life. I, I might be paraphrasing. And mm -hmm. it's really highlighting uh, how much of what we think is something we did is actually luck, for example, and how underrated that is. Um, it's not something that I didn't know at the time, but it's something that echoed what I had already thought and believed in a way that, but it really solidified that in a way that frankly takes some of the pressure off um, because if you realize how much luck is involved, there's a psychological thing. People take uh, undue credit for their success and undue lack of credit for their failures and they don't really appreciate how much is really out of our control to begin with. That's really great. I love Dan Gilbert's work too. I think his TED Talks, his books is just incredible. So it's great to see that we have that in common. I had to find something in common with you, Stephen, because I don't do magic. Right. I, well, you can learn. It's never too learn. late it's to learn. I could learn. It's never too late to learn. I need, <laughs> I need more hobbies. Next question, Ben, you're on the hot seat. All right. If you could go back to your younger self, and when I say younger self, uh, whatever you envision that to be, and give that younger self some advice. What would that advice be? Okay, I'm going to go back to when I was a fetus, and then, yeah. um, uh, the then that advice would be: remember when you were a blastocyst? And then, um, you know, I, I, I'm, I actually am not good at that question because I, if I look back at anything I've ever done, and I look carefully, I was making the best decision that I could at that time with the information that I had and whatever psychology I had at that moment. So I don't look back and think I could have whatever you know other path would have been it's like i don't do would have could have um it's not my thing so um yeah so i i can't do that one okay, that's okay. no that's, that's a great answer we will take your pass on that then i'll ask you this question uh, though it sounds like you spend a lot of time in the positive psychology space knowing to the dan gilbert work <laughs> i would be really curious to you what you do when you get in a funk um so First of all, to prove my positive psych cred, uh, I also know Marty Seligman, but that's a whole other story. Yeah. So I don't really, I don't, funk is not my thing, but mm -hmm. what does happen is on a daily basis, as I mentioned before, someone, something will pull the rug out from underneath me. And my MO is to uh, whine and pout and kind of be really annoyed until that just naturally fades and then I find a solution. And the naturally fading thing takes anywhere between a minute and a day, depending on how big the rug was and how quickly it was pulled out from underneath me. Mm -hmm. uh, so, but I don't do, yeah, I, I don't get in um, sort of depressive phases for whatever reason. But the important thing for me though, is that, you know, you can't be smart when you're stupid. And what I mean by that is when the rug gets pulled out from underneath you, and really it's very clear to me that my being upset is not because of the rug having been pulled out from underneath me. It's because I had some imagined fantasy of the future that I liked that now has to be changed. And I don't like having to change that. So right. the important part is recognizing that and knowing that while I'm in the upset phase, there's nothing I can do. I won't be creative. I've just got to wait for it to pass. And so I'm not getting derivatively mad at myself. I'm not mad because I'm mad. I'm not, you know, it's just like, oh, this is what happens. This is currently how I react. And then in some short period of time, I'll find a handful of possible solutions.
So you process the emotion, the emotion as opposed to dwell on it. You just let it get out. You know, I don't even necessarily do that. I just wait for it. I mean, sometimes I'll invest. I mean, because look, the, again, the thing that I'm very clear about is what's upsetting is the dashing of my imagined future, not the thing that actually happened. I can deal with the thing that happened. There's always going to be something to do. It doesn't mean you find a solution you like. It might be something unpleasant. But I know that my being upset is not about the thing. It's about my fantasies about the imagined future being dashed. I and like that way of perspective changing on that. Excellent. All right. So obviously our listeners are people who are thinking about betting on themselves, entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs. What is a piece of just practical game-changing advice that someone gave you that you can give to our audience that they can apply to their lives right now? Oh boy. Um, keep your legs together, point your toes. That was um, the advice my mom <laughs> gave me when I was, my first sport was diving. And she just like, that was a mantra that my mom would say to me, keep your legs together, point your toes. And all that really means is pay attention to the small stuff too. Uh, so there's nothing, the biggest mistake that I see entrepreneurs making is just not paying attention to the small stuff. And the small stuff at the very beginning can literally be, do you really have a product that anyone cares about? And I know that sounds like a big thing, but it's overlooked because people just assume they think that's a small thing. Like, oh, if I like this idea, then it must be a good idea. If you haven't proven that someone you've never met is willing to give you their hard-earned money for this thing that you're doing, then that little thing in your mind is the biggest thing. And you got to pay attention to that. Great advice. And obviously, our audience um, includes people who are just willing to take or wanting to take risks on themselves and are trying to build up the courage. I would love for you, last piece of advice, wisdom for anybody who's trying to get the courage to enact meaningful change in their life. What wisdom would you offer them? Uh, get a government job with a pension instead. Uh, <laughs> uh, um, you know, I, I, I'm not good at giving advice because I'm not arrogant enough to think that I know it's better for another person. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and I, crazy as it sounds, all the things that I've done, and I've done a lot of entrepreneurial things, I never thought of it from the standpoint of courage or risk or whatever. It just seemed interesting, and I thought, let's give it a whirl. In fact, maybe that's it. It's like the only important belief you have to have is maybe. I mean, that's really it. You don't have to do anything in advance to feel confident. You don't have to do something to visualize and have a vision board and do whatever. You just kind of take, take one step and see what happens then, and then reevaluate, and then take another step. The biggest mistake you can make is planning 10 steps ahead and then ignoring the fact that after you take the first step, those next nine steps are nowhere to be found. So, um, so if you're having some sort of uh, anxiety or fear or whatever, that's, it's either normal and you're just gonna deal with it, or you need to pay attention and maybe go and take a look and see what specifically are you worried about. What's the actual thing? Like when someone said to me, you know, what if you go bankrupt? I go, well, then I'll go live on the beach in Southern California and grab fish out of the water. Or I'll go try to get a job at Quiznos if they'll have me. Um, I don't have a, uh, the worst, I can't think of a worst thing that could, I can't think of a worst thing that could happen. Because the worst thing that's going to happen, I'm still alive. I can still function. I'll go figure out whatever the next thing is. So what is there to be afraid of? I love that level of self-reliance too. In fact, I write about that in Bet On You a lot, thinking about risk as a series of steps versus this one gigantic leap. And then a reminder that our minds do an amazing job of catastrophizing failure, oh, yeah. but spending time thinking about the glories of success. Like what if you do bet on you? Well, you know, I don't, I gotta tell you though, but backing up to stumbling on happiness, I don't even do that. 
because I know that. So I know that if I became a multi, 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 multi bajillionaire, I would not fundamentally be happier than I am now. It would allow me to do things that I can't currently do effortlessly, but it's not going to change my fundamental level of happiness. So I, I don't believe those thoughts either. When I don't, I'm not driven by those. I have a very big vision for what I'm trying to do. And if it doesn't happen, I understand that as well. But I also don't harbor the illusion that if I do change the world in some way, the way that we're trying to, that that will make me inherently happier. Sort of like you talk to people who become celebrities and something they wanted their whole life and then they get there and they discover, oh, this came with some things that I, even though I, I heard that they were going to happen, I didn't really know how unpleasant they were going to be. And so, um, again, it's a Daniel Gilbert thing. I just don't, I don't, I neither believe my catastrophizing or my fantasizing. They're just thoughts that pop up and that's what human beings do. Great points. Well, Stephen, this was a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for joining Bet On You Radio. Ben, you want to close us out? Friends, thank you so much. Stephen, Zero Shoes, if people want to know where they can find out more or purchase their own, where should they go? We are Zero Shoes, X-E-R-O Shoes.com or Zero Shoes.eu, soon to be Zero Shoes.co.uk as well. Um, and if you'll find us on social media at or slash zero shoes, wherever you happen to at or slash. And if you accidentally or your computer accidentally replaces the X with a Z, it'll still probably get to us. Fantastic. Friends, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Bet on You Radio. I am Ben Whiting here with the legendary Angie Morgan Witkowski. Stephen, thank you so much for being on here today. And we look to seeing, look forward to you tuning in next time. Thank you. Thank you. That was such a great conversation, Ben. Oh, so much fun. You have a new best friend. I do. I had no idea. I had so much in common with Steven. Street performers, the same teacher, like magic demonstrators in various magic shops across the country. I can't wait to stay in touch with him and just talk shop. But something I really got out of today that I thought was so great is I love what Steven said about you don't get obsessed and too preoccupied with planning 10 steps down the road. Just plan that one. Take it and see where you land. Because, you know, step two might be in a completely different direction than you thought. He seems very kind of zen and present in the moment, like in that mindset. I think so too. Like I think when you get so attached to an outcome that you get so fixated on the goal, you forget about the journey. So I like that, like the first step, get a breather, see how it feels, take the second step. You often hear about those, you know, boy bands, you know, overnight successes, but really it was overnight success 10 years in the making. And that's exactly. really what he's advocating right. for, which is <laughs> what I totally find too. And I also think what difference would it be in our world if more companies espouse some of the philosophies he and his wife have about their business? That sounds like a great place to work. It absolutely does. You know, they're doing profit sharing uh, with everyone. Everyone is, you know, it feels like there's a, an atmosphere of transparency there. Everyone knows what's going on. He empowers his employees, which means they feel trusted, which means they'll probably take smarter and better risks. Mm -hmm. uh, and he says, well, you know, you never know. Sometimes the guy in accounting can fix something in shipping if you just ask. Oh, I think that's great. Well, another great episode of Bet on You Radio. Thank you so much for tuning in. We hope you got loads of inspiration to go out there and do whatever it is you want to do. And we look forward to having you around for our next episode. Thanks, friends, for tuning in. Yeah.